Well, good morning. This morning, we want to continue our discussion of the book of Acts, and we're going to be studying Acts 17, verses 1 through 15. And we'll be talking about Paul and his journey to Thessalonica and Berea. The transitional book of Acts continues to reveal the implications of the certain truth that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. This was and is the key to unlocking the meaning of the gospel of the kingdom. In the study of the birth and early development of the New Testament Ecclesia recorded in Acts, the first church council settled the questions of ethnic inclusivity and the relationship between Christianity and Judaism. Converts to Christianity from the ethnicities, that is the Gentiles, did not have to convert to Judaism and did not have to obey the law of Moses. However, a clear understanding of the requirements for admission into the New Testament Ecclesia was not attained. The council in Acts 15 attached four stipulations to the gospel. It was the gospel of the grace of Christ, plus abstinence from meat offered to idols, abstinence from strangled meat, abstinence from blood, meaning drinking blood, and abstinence from sexual immorality. In time, these stipulations would be dropped and the good news of the kingdom would be clear. The kingdom of God is about Jesus being recognized as Lord and Christ and lived, living according to that reality. This truth provided the key to unlocking the true meaning of Old Testament scripture, and it unlocked the meaning of what it was to be a Christian. After the council, Paul embarked on an apostolic journey to deliver the council's decision to the disciples in Derby, Lystra, and other places, places that he had visited. He had, in addition, he sought to expand his work. He sought the Lord. He tried different places, was, was blocked from going different places. Interesting how the Holy Spirit works. He says, no, 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 and then he says, yes. And then when he says, yes, you go someplace and you get rejected and wound up in prison. Very interesting how God works, but that's how he works. So today we're going to continue with Paul's travels on this journey on to Thessalonica and Berea after being um, ex expelled from Philippi. Uh, Thessalonica was about 100 miles from Philippi, and there he followed his custom. He went to the synagogue to share the truth about Jesus. The Jews who opposed him became jealous and organized opposition against him. Surprise, surprise, this was the pattern as well. For his safety, he was sent to Berea, which is about 50 miles southwest of Thessalonica. And again, following his custom, he went to the synagogue, seeking biblically literate people uh, who regarded scripture as authoritative. This time he found favor with people. They eagerly received his teaching and validated what they were hearing by searching the Old Testament scriptures. That's a good practice. Validate what you think you're hearing in the word. Many of these people were persuaded that Jesus was both Lord and Christ. The jealous Jews in Thessalonica heard about what was going on in Berea, and they organized persecution against him in Berea. Again, he fled, this time to Athens, a journey of about 200 miles, mostly by boat. And that will be our topic next time, his time in Athens, which is another very interesting apologetic that you'll see. This is the most pure apologetic he gives to the Gentiles. But today we're going to focus in on Paul in Thessalonica and in Berea. So let's uh, read the text, starting with verses 1 through 9. After they passed Epiphilus and Apollonia, excuse me, 
they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. Now just make, make a quick point here. You'll notice that in chapter 16, you saw the, the word we, the pronoun we. Now it's they. He's gone from uh, you know, first person to third person. So it, it implies that Luke did not make this journey with him, that he may have stayed in Philippi, or perhaps he returned to his hometown of Troas. That may have happened. We don't know exactly what happened with Luke. And why they passed by Amphipolis and Apollonia, we don't know that. They came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue, and as usual, or as was customary, Paul went into the synagogue on three days and reasoned with them. Now, the reason I think that Paul has a custom of doing this is Paul is bringing to them a message of Old Testament truth. Jesus is Lord in Christ is now a key revelation to unlock the meaning of the Old Testament. So he's going someplace where he knows that the Old Testament will be honored, where people will be submitted to the authority of Scripture. So I think that's why he goes there. Uh, you think about that today. Um, we assume that people who gather in a, in a community that we may call a local church, we assume that they're most likely biblically oriented. Uh, today, that's not true. Uh, in the synagogue time, the people were very biblically oriented. The records we have show they were committed to the word. They were very word-centered. They read and studied the word. They listened to the word explained. So the, the Old Testament scripture was their guide, their authority in life. Sadly, today, many in the Christian church are not, are not so inclined. Uh, there's all kinds of, of crazy thinking that's going on in the church world that is really misleading and, and guiding the church astray. So it's a very different scenario. Paul is going where he knows the Bible will be honored, where the Bible is the authoritative word of God. And on three days, he reasoned with them. This word reason means to think through. We're thinking through scripture uh, relative to Christ being Jesus and also Jesus being king. That's the key element, the heart of the gospel of the kingdom of God is who Jesus is and what he did. So he's reason, reasoning with them, explaining that he's, he's, he's trying to open their minds because their minds have largely been closed and proving. Now, this is not a proof in the formal sense, but what it is, it's, it's a this is that kind of thing. The word literally means he's setting up Christ beside all of these Old Testament prophecies to say this is what being fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled it. He did it. And, of course, the proof for them is really the resurrection. That's an empirical fact that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Christianity is a historical worldview. It's based on historical facts. It's not just based on thoughts. It's based on factual events that happen that have great significance, and there's supernatural activity that confirms that the divine power of the universe, namely God, has approved and accepted of these facts. So this is what's going on. It's a, a lot of discussion about what this means. Now, let me just give you some examples of the kinds of things that Paul was probably doing. What he was actually saying to them is he is 
is whatever synagogue he goes to, he's doing the same things. He's presenting the truth that Jesus is Lord and Christ. And now how do we understand the Old Testament in light of that revelation? So I've just got a few items here. There's there's probably 40, maybe 60 different prophetic passages in the Old Testament, maybe more than that, but easily, you know, 40. Uh, so some of the things that he would probably talk about is that Jesus was the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. He would talk about Jesus was the seed of Abraham in Genesis 12.3. He would talk about Jesus being born of a virgin, <clears throat> Isaiah 7.14, or Jesus lived in accordance with the meta narrative, Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Jesus was crucified, Numbers 21, 6 through 9, and resurrected, Psalm 16, 8 through 11, and Isaiah 53. He was the basis of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31. He's the suffering servant of Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. He's the rejected cornerstone of Psalm 18, 22. He's the worker of life-affirming redemptive deeds, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. He's the substitutionary atonement, Isaiah 52. He's the preceded by a forerunner, Elijah, predicted in Malachi 3, 1 and, and 4. He is a prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. He's a king like David and the descendant of David, 2 Samuel 7 a priest like Melchizedek, Psalm 110, and the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. So those are just some of the texts that could have been explored and expounded in the synagogue sessions. He had lots of options. He was talking to people that knew the Old Testament stories. What they didn't know was that Jesus was the Christ and furthermore, they didn't know that Jesus was Lord. He was the king. So that's what was un being unpacked in all these discussions. Now, so as he was talking to him, he was pointing out it was necessary that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. And then he says, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, the Messiah. Now, some of, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks. Now, God-fearing Greeks, we kind of have to try to understand that. That's a word. There are several words in the Greek language that could be used, but it's a CBO. Uh, perhaps this implies the work of the Holy Spirit as already evident in them, like Lydia. Uh, in Acts 16, 14, Lydia is said to be a God-fearing woman, and that's before she heard the message of Christ. So what is it that makes someone God-fearing? Uh, it's hard to know, but other than probably the Holy Spirit is working in them, either in regeneration or prior to regeneration, to turn their hearts. And then once they're regenerated, their hearts are changed, and they begin to think differently, and they begin to express faith in Christ. They begin to embrace Christ. So those are signs that the Holy Spirit has worked in them. So we believe that what precedes faith is actually the work of the Spirit through re regeneration and perhaps through other activities beyond regeneration. In other words, he may move in someone's heart before he actually regenerates them. Okay, so it's a number of God-fearing Greeks as well as a number of leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and this is always the case. The religious leaders, this is not all the Jews, because many of them had believed in 
accepted it. There was just these religious leaders that they were jealous because people were drawn away from them. That happens today. You see people leaving a local church. There's usually a jealous reaction by the leaders of the church where the leaders are, people are leaving. Uh, that's, that's just human nature. That shows the fallenness of mankind, the sin that's in all of us. So the Jews became jealous and they brought together some wicked men from the city. Uh, these are people, it's, it's the word here is paneros from panos, which means pain. These are people in pain. Wicked people are usually people of, of addictions. You know, they have some sort of addiction to medicate the pain. So they tend to be hanging around the marketplace. They don't usually have jobs. They just hang around and do nothing and get into mischievous, mischievous problems. But so that we had these people here forming a mob and they start a riot. A riot is, is confusion. Uh, usually people are riot, don't know why they're rioting. Uh, they just know that. It's an opportunity to express anger. It's an opportunity to do things that they would normally do, like throw bricks and Molokov cocktails and various things like this. And so they start this riot and they start looking for Paul. So they go to where they think he's staying. He's staying at Jason's house. So they search for them and to find them and bring them out for a public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials. And now they're shouting which is just so typical. You see these in this mob action, which is unruly, it's uncontrolled, it's just out of order. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here. And that's so interesting that they would be described that way because in many ways, Jesus does turn the world upside down. Um, so that's a truthful statement, but they're saying it in a pejorative sense. It's a negative sense. So, they are trying to use this against them. And Jason has even welcomed them. So they're pointing out how Jason has been a collaborator. You know, he's gotten in the way here. He's been, he's cooperated with them. They're all acting contrary to Caesar's decree or Caesar's dogma. That's literally the word dogma. We get the word doctrine from that saying that there is another, uh, and another king. Now this is in the Greek language. You could say, another in two different ways. Uh, one way you could say another is another of the same kind. Another way you could say another is another of a different kind. So this is the word used here is heteros, which means another of a different kind. Uh, so it's implying that Jesus as a king is different from Caesar, which that's very true. He is a divine king. Caesar's not a divine king, even though they want to say he's a divine king, he's really not a divine king. So they, they're basically using the truth here to against them. And of course, when you don't have a biblical worldview, the truth sounds like error to you. The truth sounds like things that are out of order. And so you, we, you fight and react against the truth. And that's what happened here. The crowd and the city officials who heard these things were upset. After taking security bond from Jason and others, they released them. Well, they weren't too upset. All it took was a little bit of money and then they're okay. So you can see this was a very disingenuous situation that happened here. There was no real threat. This was all staged. It's all for power and control. It's all sin. And this is the way people work. This is the way religious leaders respond to truth many times. And that's very convicting. If you are, 
a leader in a local church, you need to think about this. All right. I want to be sure I resp respond properly to truth, even if it's truth I don't understand or truth I don't necessarily like. I need to learn to respond properly to truth. Otherwise, I wind up doing exactly what this mob did here in Thessalonica, which was so out of order. Well, God's will is never thwarted. So uh, what happens there is uh, as soon as the it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away. In other words, they waited for night, the cover of night. Uh, this happened to Paul on more than one occasion where he was snuck out by night. So for his own safety, his own protection. So as soon as it was this night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul out. Uh, I love the fact that Paul functioned by being sent. He didn't just go. He didn't just leave. He was connected to the community. The community was making a decision about what was best. And they decided to send Paul and Silas away to Berea. So here they go. Now, we don't know if, if Timothy went with them. It sounds like he did, although he's not specifically mentioned here, because you can see when we get down to verse 15, Timothy's with them. So when did Timothy show up? We don't know exactly for sure, but he's there at the end. So Paul and Silas, they're taken 50 miles away to Berea. Upon their arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. The people here were more of more noble character. Now, that is a really interesting statement. First of all, the word uh, more noble character. Uh, if you can read Greek, you can tell from my notes up here on the screen. Uh, it's a word that um, it's a word that sounds like eugenetics. Eugenetics is an English word that means good genes. Uh, it's it's a word that uh, became popular about 100 years ago when Margaret Sanger, uh, uh, acting under the spirit of Antichrist, you know, began to try to do, do gene selection. And that's what ultimately led to abortion. And she wanted to abort people that had deformed genes. Uh, so that's that was a whole field that developed in the 20th century that was very out of order. But... The word eugenetics also means somebody who's well-born in the sense that they have good background, good character. They have they have the abilities, more, maybe a little more common grace is a way to think about this. But these are people that um, they're, they're thinking better than the Thessalonians. And the way you know that is they received the word with eagerness. You see... Now, he's back in the synagogue, going to the synagogue, just like he did in Thessalonica. But the people in Thessalonica, they kind of were combative. Now, some of them were persuaded, but, you know, they were a little bit combative. Here in Berea, they're not combative. They're eagerly receiving the word, and they're searching the scriptures to see if indeed what Paul is saying is true. So, in other words, they're not, they're not being doubting Thomases. They're not approaching the, what Paul is saying with doubt and skepticism. They're approaching and saying, well, great, I want to hear this truth that Jesus is Lord in Christ, and what does this mean? Now, let me look at the scriptures that you're pointing to, and let's see if we agree with your interpretation. So that's what's going on here. Consequently, many of them believed. They believed that Jesus was Lord in Christ. The testimony of the resurrection that he was giving to them, the confirmation of what this meant was being received here. And there was even a, pro a number of prominent Greek women as well as men 
it's interesting. He makes a big point. It's men and women both, prominent people even, who are doing this. It's generally very difficult for the rich in any sense to receive the kingdom. We know that principle from Jesus. He taught us that. But here you see that being an exception here. Prominent people, men and women, are coming to believe that Jesus is Lord in Christ and now seeking to understand what does that mean and how do I live in light of that. But when the Jews from Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowd. You see, the Jewish leaders are very jealous. They're very upset. They're losing, they're losing their crowd. They're seeing their crowd thin out. They're seeing their influence diminished. They're seeing their power and control is lessened. So they're very upset here. And so they're going to do anything they can to disrupt this. And in doing so, they're opposing the truth. And perhaps they're not even aware that's what they're doing. I think many times that's what we all do is we oppose what God's doing in the name of Jesus, not even realize we're doing it because it doesn't fit our pictures. We have to let the word of God define our pictures. So the more the word of God defines truth and reality for us, the more aligned or likely we are to be aligned with him and we support what he supports and we don't suppose what he supports. Then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away. Again, Paul is sent away and again, it's for his own safety, but Silas and Timothy stayed there. So now Timothy is there. I don't know how he got there exactly, but he's there with Silas and they remain. Those who escorted Paul brought them as far as Athens, and after receiving instruction from si for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So Paul will be left in Athens by himself for a season, and you'll see next time how he gets, gets himself in a bit of trouble, but he also has some very effective, uh, fruitful time there sharing the truth that Jesus is Lord in Christ. Well, let's talk a little bit of theology and an application here. So I want to talk about the apostles' doctrine. In Acts 2.42, Luke recorded four practices that the first New Testament ecclesia was devoted to. The apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Now, how are Christians to understand these early practices, particularly the apostles' doctrine? Well, in Acts 1.8, Jesus commissioned his apostles to be his witnesses. That is the witness of his resurrection in Jerusalem. We have to be clear on this. We use the word witness in a different sense from Acts 1.8. Today, we talk about a witness as someone sharing their personal experience of choosing Christ. At least that's what they think they're sharing. Uh, that is not the sense of Acts 1.8. The idea of witness here was an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ, resurrected Jesus. And those are the people that were going to be sent out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth to, to affirm as eyewitnesses that Jesus was resurrected. And therefore, the claim that he is Lord in Christ is valid. That is really important that we understand that. That's not the way we commonly understand it today. And I would say our understanding today is misinformed. We need to go back to a biblical understanding of this. So the Apostle Paul explained the resurrection was the linchpin of Christianity. 
without the resurrection, there is no forgiveness of sin and therefore no Christianity. That's what Paul goes to great extent to explain in 1 Corinthians 15. But as Paul stated, Jesus was resurrected and therefore his life and work were divinely validated. The original apostles were eyewitnesses. Paul was not an eyewitness. He was not one of the original apostles. And in Acts 13, he refers back to the original apostles, acknowledging they were the eyewitnesses. And then what he is doing is just sharing the truth that comes from them. So Paul is not an eyewitness. He's leaning on the original apostles as the eyewitnesses to the fact of the resurrection. This meant that Jesus was Lord and Christ. Therefore, they reinterpreted their understanding of the Old Testament scripture based on this certain revelation. Now, that's so wonderful the way that he uses the word certain, because in the Greeks, the Greek culture, the idea of something being certain was really challenging because they, they were great skeptics. So when you're a skeptic, you don't know hardly anything for certain. But what, what scripture goes to great length to point out is that we have a, a, a Jesus here who we can know for certain that the Father has made Lord in Christ. That is exactly the way Acts 2.36 lays it out. So we have certain revelation here. This was the correct way to understand the Old Testament based on this certain revelation and therefore formulating how to live under the new covenant as disciples of Jesus would be based on Jesus as Lord and Christ. This was the apostles' doctrine. Now, there are scores of Old Testament prophecies about Christ that speak of who he was and what he did. For example, I've already mentioned some, but some more. Scripture reveals his virgin birth, the place of his birth, and his lineage. And there are prophecies about his divine and human natures, his death and resurrection, his atoning work as a suffering servant, the fact he's the Savior and judge of the world. All of these things are in the Old Testament. There are also prophecies about his offices, his prophet, priest, and king, and the new covenant based on the old covenant. Both are revealed in and through Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as Lord. This was the apostles' doctrine. Much of the book of Acts records the process of the apostles growing in their understanding about the doctrines of Christianity. They studied the Old Testament carefully, seeking to understand what the scripture said about the Christ. Those who followed the original apostles, such as the apostle Paul, continued to develop Christian doctrine. In other words, on Pentecost, there was not robust understanding of Christian doctrine. There was a very simple understanding of Christian doctrine. And Acts records a continuing uh, process of getting more and more illumination about the truth. And even after that, in writing the epistles, the Apostle Paul continued the process of contemplating the Word of God in light of Jesus being Lord in Christ. So, for example, in his second epistle to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul shared some of his contemplations. He said this, We have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. That's 2 Corinthians 5.14. Now, based on that truth, reflecting on that, then Paul goes into discussion that leads to a declaration of double imputation in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, just seven verses later. So this is what he said. He said this, that God the Father made Jesus, who did not know sin, to be sin for us, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, that's double imputation. Him who did not know sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, our sin was imputed to Jesus and his righteousness was imputed to us. That's called double imputation. That's part of the exchange that Richard was talking about earlier. That happens. That is the work of Jesus on the cross on our behalf. So this begs the question, has the apostles' doctrine been fully developed? Well, at least they have played their part. I think you can say that. And the apostles, and specifically those who followed them like Paul, have played their part in unpacking that doctrine very well. But given the incomprehensibility of God, one might expect that a comprehensive knowledge of God would be an ongoing process that will not be completed in this existence. That's probably a fair statement. This means that though each phase through each phase of church history, more and more truth about God is being revealed and discovered and sometimes rediscovered like the Reformation was a rediscovery of Augustinian truth. See, Augustine was in the 4th century, the Reformation's in the 15th century, uh, 16th century, so you have some, you know, 1100 years between the two and between the Augustinian theology that was expressed in the 4th century and then the 16th century Reformation, you know, there was a, a time where the gospel got very confused. And we didn't understand the truth very well. We didn't understand the doctrines of the faith very well. And now the Reformation reunited our study and our understanding and developed our understanding even further. And as you see this, you're not surprised at, at Paul's comments at the end of Romans 11, when he's reflecting on the vastness, the immensity of God, the incomprehensibility of God, the wonders of God. He said, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And who has given to God that he should be repaid? For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Hopefully you heard that. For from him, he's the source. Through him, he's the agency. To him, is the ultimate goal and purpose are all things. This is why we have to learn to live under the will and ways of God. We have to learn to live out the call of God in our life. The SLA message is about learning to live out this reality for, for, for from him, through him, and to him are all things. This very principle is repeated in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It's the same thing, running our race. He's the source of our race. He is the one we have to look to moment by moment, day by day to live our race. And he's the ultimate end and purpose of our race. So this is why the message of SLA is basic training. If you really know the Lord, you will hunger to know the purpose for which you exist. And that is basic training to a Christian or should be. Sadly, uh, I don't see that well recognized in popular Christianity today. Let me do a word of application here. My admonition to all of us is to be a Berean. The people of Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word eagerly and searched the scriptures to see if what Paul taught was really true. The implication is they were more noble-minded in the sense of being better thinkers, more rational, and wiser people. The people whom God spoke with in Berea were biblically literate 
unlike today, we don't generally have in our communities high levels of biblical literacy. There are a few, but I would say by and large, the most, the average person that walks into a community of believers, whether they profess to be a Christian or not, almost doesn't matter, they're not going to be biblically literate. So biblical literacy is a big problem. It's been written about a lot in recent days by some of the great theologians who are trying to teach truth and running into more and more obstacles because of biblical illiteracy. Now, in the early days of the faith, they had the the benefit of the synagogue system. The synagogue system was established after the dispersion of, of Israel to enable the dispersed Jews to stay connected to their Jewish heritage rooted in the Old Testament. The synod system began to develop in the 4th century BC, which was because the Jewish people were dispersed. By the 1st century AD, the system was well-developed and became a place for people to become biblically literate. It became the preferred venue for Paul to share the message that Jesus is Lord and Christ because his message, his apologetic, was rooted in Old Testament scripture first and foremost. So going to a place where biblical literacy was much more likely to be the case was a good place. That was good, a good fishing ground for him to find people that might be hungry and that the Holy Spirit might be working with to share the message. So the power of the synagogue system was in part its commitment to the authority of Scripture and the responsibility of each Jew to be regulated by Scripture. And because of their commitment to scripture, Luke noted that the Bereans were exemplary. They received with eagerness what Paul shared, and they validated it by searching the scripture. For all who claim to be Christ's followers, the scripture must be their authority in life. And they must take personal responsibility to be biblically literate so they can be biblically governed. If you're not biblically literate, you cannot be biblically governed. This means that all aspects of life should be submitted to values, principles, and practices congruent with Scripture. This is a very high bar, a very high standard, one that's generally not discussed very much, at least in the circles that I see. I see largely a very low bar where if you come to a weekly event and you sing and you dance uh, and you tithe and volunteer, you're considered to be in good standing. Uh, You can go do whatever you want to do the rest of the time. That's generally what's accepted. That's not what Christianity is. We're we're giving a false impression in the way that we're practicing the faith. All jurisdictions of life, personal, family, church, work, public policy, should be regulated by Scripture. Submitting popular cultural ideas to scriptural scrutiny would then redefine and or eliminate most of this thinking, most of what we would call best practices today, from my perspective, has not been submitted to biblical scrutiny. The cultural norms today have not been submitted to biblical scrutiny. You know, how we think about money and the American dream has not been submitted to biblical scrutiny. And so as long as that's the case, we're probably not going to be very biblically aligned in these areas. We've got to learn to live holistically under the authority of scripture. Every area, every moment, every place, when every relationship, all the time. That is what Christianity is. Submitting to the authority of Scripture, however, is not popular with those particularly who wish to live as humanists. And sadly, you have basically two kinds of people. You have real Christians and then you have humanists. So you have a lot lot of people in the category of being professing Christians who live like humanists. 
humanists want to be their own authority. They're increasingly the cultures of the world are governed by humanists, not Berean Christians. Consequently, biblical authority is increasingly rejected. The Bible is rejected, Christianity is rejected, prayers rejected, all the practices and norms of Christianity are rejected. To reject the authority of scripture is to reject the creator and sovereign Lord of all. This is deranged thinking. What, how can you possibly call that good thinking? To reject the creator and the sovereign Lord of all, how can that be sound thinking? It can't be. So this deranged thinking will manifest in purposelessness, hopelessness, that will be further evidenced by dysfunctional families, educational confusion, economic calamity, and ineffective public policy. And let me say, we could see world wars from this. Deranged thinking seems to be growing in the cultures of the world today. And the only way to reverse this is return to scripture as the basis for sound thinking and sound living. May the Christians of the world rise up. May they repent. Lord, grant us grace to repent and turn to the model of the Bereans who were regulated by the word of God. They were committed to living holistically according to the authority of scripture, and they would not let anything dissuade them. And they eagerly received the word of God and validated the teaching so that their regulation was truly by the word and not by the ideas of men. We must learn to be regulated by the word. So may we learn to do that well for his glory in Jesus' name. Amen.